This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. Back in 1963, Sammy Lee opened up a restaurant with entertainment that I think most people would have heard of, Lay Girls. The goings-on in King's Cross are at the heart of Deborah Chalinor's book, The Jacaranda House. Welcome, Deborah. Hello. Now, you've got Rhoda, who is over six feet tall with size 10 shoes, and her friend Star as characters in your story. Tell us a bit about them. They are transgender artists. Now, I don't know if they'd call themselves that then, but that's what I'm calling them now. They live in a flat in the cross and they're central to the story and they're friends with Polly, who's another central character. And they're based on two um, transgender girls who I interviewed a few years ago when I was over visiting Sydney. They're quite closely based on these girls I interviewed. I love their stage names. Starry E. Knight and Rhoda Dendron. They've got a show. They're flamboyantly dressed as Jane Russell and Marilyn Monroe. And uh, through the writing, we even learn how they gaffer tape up their manly bits. That was interesting to research. I, I, know, I know a few transgender people and I sort of knew that, but I don't quite know them well enough to ask. It's quite a personal question. It's all over the internet how to do that sort of thing. So, not hard to find out. Well, as you said, they share a flat with Polly and she's the main character. When we first meet her, she's an exotic stripper called Heliopolis the Dusky Maori Maiden. She's from New Zealand, just as you are, and so are many of the characters in this book. Who was Terry Lawrence? Terry is a character from the previous book in the series, From the Ashes. Polly has a friend called Evie, who we'll talk about shortly. And Evie was a nanny to Terry when Terry was a child. Now, Terry's um, an individual person as well, who turns up in this, this book as well. And he's, one, he, he's, he's a night person. I, I, I call these people night people because they, they come out at night because of who they are and how they feel about themselves and how society treats them. And... He started off being not a nice person, Terry, but the more I wrote about him, the more I liked him and the more I felt sorry for him. And he's just a boy, really. He really is just a child, Terry, and doesn't have the greatest of endings in this book, which, which is very sad, but I couldn't think of a way to write out a happy ending for him. Yeah. And I, I think that might reflect life for a lot of night people. Yeah, well, Terry is working the cross as a, a male prostitute and uh, he came across, because as a quote from the book, it is easy to disappear in Sydney. Isn't that why everybody comes? You mentioned Evie was Terry's nanny in New Zealand who knew him as a nine-year-old awkward trouble boy. Evie is the most ordinary or sensible of Poppy's friends. She's also a stripper, but is saving up to get out of the King's Cross. Poppy has saved a little too. She's been estranged from her family. So why does Poppy go back to New Zealand? Well, she left her child, Gina, there 
um, she's never been in a position, a mental position, or a, a physical position to look after her baby Gina, and her mother Uppy has raised Gina from, from a baby. The circumstances of Gina's birth are such that Polly hasn't actually wanted to raise Gina, but um, Polly's got to the point where now she wants to raise Gina, and uh, Gina's 11 years old now. Polly did something so awful in the previous book that she had to leave New Zealand because she is completely excommunicated by almost all of her very large family, which is why she has run away to King's Cross. But now that Gina's 11 years old, Polly wants her back. So she goes back home to New Zealand and gets her. Gina hasn't seen her mother for a long time. Right. So how does, how does Polly entice Gina to come with her back to Australia and Sydney? Well, basically she says, hey, I've got tickets to the Beatles in Brisbane. The Beatles. Which is a mean, mean trick to play on an 11-year-old. But, you know, it's the Beatles. Yes, absolutely. And, and, and Polly, Polly is a little bit underhanded, you know, I mean, she's lived, it's the way she's lived, and, and she does love Gina, and she wants Gina back, and Gina loves her mother, her mother has been gone for most of her life, and Gina's built Polly to be up, this, up to be this princess who's always been overseas, like, you know, like the new queen, Elizabeth, and it just all comes together and, and basically Gina is pinched by her mother. So we, we see how that turns out. Well, you know, Gina, 11 year old with a mother and friends who all work at night. So they need a babysitter. And this is where we meet the lovely Miss Carver, Auntie M. Now she's a delightful uh, character. Was she modelled on anyone? Oh, sort of. She sort of was modelled on my auntie Elan, who never, ever, ever swore, who always used the correct word for everything, who never said toilet, who always said lavatory. And she was just so precise and dressed beautifully and took half an hour to cut up one tomato at lunchtime. So that's who she was modelled on, really. Very precise, very, very well educated. Well, you've included real people, real people from King's Cross in this story. There's Abe Saffron, who is doing a roaring drug trade and seems to run King's Cross, and everyone knows to be wary of him. There's the Reverend Ted Knopf's in the Wayside Chapel. But it's Rosalie Norton I hadn't heard of. What was she better known as? The witch, of, the witch of King's Cross. I'm very proud of her because she was a Kiwi. Sydney, yeah, Sydney people would have heard of her. Um, she lived there. Oh, she, I think her family moved there. This, I've, I've put a bit in the back of the book about her when she was about, I don't know, seven or something. I can't remember. She lived in Australia most of her life, Sydney, for her entire life. She steadfastly stuck to her pagan religion and was ostracised. For it, but for her whole life, but she stuck to it, and I really admire that. Doesn't matter whether you follow her religion or not, but she stuck to it. She was a very unusual and intelligent and well-educated woman, fascinating woman, and she did um, she did pagan art. All the, the descriptions you have of her, and you know her 
her, where she lived and everything, but you also describe her with the most unusual teeth. Did she really well, have teeth like that? She, she did. There's, um, there's a documentary on YouTube called The Glittering Mile, and she features on it. And they are the weirdest teeth. She didn't have a lot of money and obviously didn't have the money to have her teeth fixed or to have dental work. But it really struck me and she had the poshest voice as well to go with these strange teeth. I thought, I have to mention that. (laughs) Paula becomes a hostess, but her side job is passing on drugs. She's keen to stop the thoughts and memories. So she uses a wide range of medicine brought off the street. But it is suggested to her by a well-dressed woman that this little package of heroin is pure, unadulterated bliss. One hit of this darling and all your troubles will just float away. So what happens next? Well, she does float away, doesn't she? And then the whole life starts to float away. Everything gets out of control. And she gets in trouble with the, with the guy who's buying and the drugs and it all falls apart. And Let's hear a little bit earlier on from the book, from page 51. And this is Deborah Jalanor reading from The Jacaranda House. Okay. Rhoda said, we only want to help. You seem so sad sometimes. If we knew why, maybe we could help if you'd let us. I don't need help, Polly said. Don't roll your eyes at each other. I've made it this far on my own, haven't I? And what a joyful, healthy and positive soul you are too, Star remarked. Oh, shut up. Polly didn't want to talk about help for herself. She wanted to talk about Gina. Shut up yourself, Rhoda said sharply. Do you think we don't know what pain is? what misery and despair feel like. Look at us, two blokes in frocks. Do you think we go around like this for fun? No, we bloody don't. We can't live the other way. So we live like this because it's closer to who we're supposed to be. But is it easy? No, it fucking isn't. Every day is a bloody battle with our bodies and with everything outside that door. We hurt, Paul, and we know what hurt looks like and we see it in you. So don't be so bloody precious and selfish selfish with your pain. Share it. Polly stared at her. Where the hell did that come from? And share her pain? Who deliberately shared their pain? It might escape and wreak havoc. Or even worse, after having shaped her identity over so many years, it might evaporate and leave her completely hollow and empty husk. I, she began, and then, yeah, Sorry. Mm. So even her brother says, why is she like this? So, of course, the addiction, the money payments, the threats, and a continuing circle that requires very good friends and family to get out of. We've got blackmail, kidnapping, and muggings, and the police can't even be of assistance. So this is all in the the, uh, Jacaranda house. Now, um, Deborah Chaloner, you've won the New Zealand Order of Merit for services to literature and historical research. And this book sits as a read alone in your Restless Years series. And you mentioned that at the beginning, that you've brought in some of the same uh, characters. I assume that series has got something about the enforced moving of the Maoris in Auckland. 
does it? The Ngāti Whātua, yes, who were moved off their land, yes, it does. The last book talks about it, and so does the first book in this series, which is called Fire. Yeah, as I said, yeah. this is the standalone, but I think I would even be interested enough to read back on those yeah. on that story on that series. So yeah. we've got King's Cross in the 60s, a place to swing or a place to hide. There are a collection of friends who are trying to find their own identities while helping each other in Deborah Chalanor's The Jacaranda House. Thank you, Deborah. Thank you very much. And now it's David's turn. Would erasing the memory of your past make you a better person? This is the intriguing premise behind Lily Wilkinson's latest book, The Erasure Initiative. So, Lily, welcome back to 3CR. Thank you, David. It's my pleasure to be here. Now, the opening of this novel reveals several characters on a bus without a clue to their actual identities. Amongst them is Cecily, but this is actually all part of an experiment and it raises some very intriguing questions, not the least of which is the notion of who we truly are as individuals. Would erasing the memory of your past or your past experiences allow you a clean slate and make you a better person? And Lily, what was the impetus behind this conceit? It all sort of started off with uh, an image that sort of jumped into my mind at the extremely inconvenient time of about three o'clock in the morning, where I just had this image of a girl trapped inside a vehicle, like a self-driving vehicle that she couldn't stop and couldn't control, and that she had no memory of who she was or how she got there. And everything kind of came from that. I started to read about memory loss um, and how memory is linked to identity, uh, and that kind of led me to ethics as well, and everything kind of fell into place. Behind this debate regarding memory and such like is this notion of incarceration and imprisonment. You sort of raise this notion then of prison and the purpose it serves. Does it actually help to reform people and make one a better citizen? Uh, yeah, one of the things that I kind of um, thought about in in writing the book and thinking about ethics and thinking about who people are is it sort of then led me to think about criminality and, and you know, are we in, you know, are people inherently bad or can people change? And then that kind of led me to think about um, sort of our justice system and how we treat people who, you know, society has decided are criminals. And kind of the more research you do into it, the, the less convinced you become, or at least the less convinced I became, that, um, that, you know, the prison industrial complex is the best way to do it, particularly in the US with the rise of private prisons, where they are not actually, um, you know, a private prison makes money for the number of prisoners they have in there. So they want more prisoners. So there is not a lot of incentive to rehabilitate prisoners. So it sort of opened up a lot of really, really interesting issues. And so the question then becomes, well, if prison isn't the right answer, then what is? But you actually go into this notion also of whether it's embedded in your DNA. There's one character that really just reverts back to her old way of doing things. Can we actually change and transform ourselves or is it just part of who we are mm, yeah I think that's really interesting um and I think probably you know the answer as always is like maybe both I don't know uh, certainly your memories 
and your experiences do inform a lot of, you know, who you are and what you do. Um, but then how much of it is sort of just somehow inside of you? And I think that it's always going to be a little bit of a mix. I think that there are certain traits and, you know, identity markers that, that maybe are just there from the beginning. Another concept is that of technology and the ability to control one's memories. The wristband is about to play a tone that will deactivate certain neurons in your medial temporal lobe. Your memory will be gone in three minutes. Now, amongst other things, this raises the notion of the ethics behind certain technological advances. And there is one character, Cato Bell, who operates this memory altering technology. Now, can such a thing be used to assist mankind and make for a better society? Or is it a step too far, our ability with technology? I mean, I think that that's always the question with technology, isn't it? Like technology has this incredible potential to be able to save the world, to make our lives better, to, you know, lift people up out of poverty and disadvantage. But there's also always a risk that it can be used dangerously. And, you know, you look at like gene editing, um, uh, you know, technology like CRISPR, that there's an incredible amount there of, of potential, but also like it's pretty scary. You know, it's only a few steps before, you know, the Terminator has become reality. And so I think that the question is always who has the technology and who is using it? We need to decide as a society about what limitations we need to set on what we're going to do and what we're going to try to do. And I think that that becomes much, much harder sort of nowadays where we live in a very globalised world, that it's really, it is decisions that we have to make sort of as a species, not as individual countries. Well, it goes to the heart of things like Facebook and Google and the fact that they can suck up so much information mm. about individuals and the fact that we're so prepared to give them all this data about ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. And it becomes very difficult to operate in the world if you don't give them that information. Uh, you know, they, they have sort of found these incredibly great ways of um, making us volunteer all of that stuff. So it, it's hard to walk that line. It's like, how paranoid do you become? And then if you do go down that road of like, no, I don't want them to have any of my information, then what are you giving up? Now, memory can play a key when it comes to our identity, but you also look at relationships and sexual identity as well. Mm -hmm. The ambivalence created when we lose our sense of self also goes to the notion of how we see ourselves sexually. And Cecily has a choice here. Like at the beginning of the book, I think all of the characters are drawn um, very, very broadly because they don't have any memories. So it's very difficult to kind of get into character development when nobody knows who they are. So I wanted them to be quite archetypal at the beginning and then to sort of peel back those layers a little bit as the, as the book goes on, as they learn a little bit more about themselves and kind of interrogate some of those assumptions that, that they make about each other, that they make about themselves and also that we as the reader have made about them. And so Cecily presents as being this, you know, incredibly privileged girl. She's blonde, she's pretty, she's young, she's white. Uh, she comes from a wealthy family. She's intelligent. You know, she has everything. And so her natural mate on the bus is Paxton, who's the same. He's, you know, an alpha male jock who nobody has ever said no to in his entire life. So she is attracted to him. She's definitely physically attracted to him. And she thinks that he is the one who she should be with. But she is also drawn to Nia, who is very, very different from her. 
Nia is uh, sort of anti-authoritarian. She's got a shaved head. She had piercings. She's a person of colour. She's an amputee. Um, and they hate each other. Cecily and Nia are very, very um, uh, sort of at each other's throats. But neither of them can stop talking to each other. And there is definitely an underlying attraction between them as well. Now, while this storyline of being trapped on a bus is fantastical, they're asked to solve ethical dilemmas. And the storyline here, especially with the relationships as well, goes to the very heart of adolescents sorting out their identities. On the bus, they are faced with versions of the trolley problem. You're in a moving vehicle. Before you, the road forks. Ahead, there are five pedestrians. On the side road, there is one pedestrian. You can press a button and the bus will turn off onto the side road. The bus will not stop. Do you press the button? Yes. No. These sorts of questions start fascinating adolescents as well as adults. Yeah, absolutely. I think that adolescence is really a time when you start to think about ethics, where you start to think about what your ethical standpoint is. Young people tend to be incredibly idealistic, which is one of the things I really love about them. You know, they are very, very fierce about making the world a better place. They know how to do it. They are exhausted by the idea of adults who just sit around and do nothing. And, you know, you can see that in the kind of, uh, you know, the movements that you see sort of around climate change in particular um, and gun control in the US that are really being spearheaded by young people. And so they are very fascinated by these kind of ethical ideas. Uh, But the thing is, is that I think that particularly when you're a teenager, you tend to think that your ethical standpoint is very fixed, that you know what is a good thing and you know what is a bad thing. But I really wanted to kind of poke that bear as it is and ask questions that make you realise that maybe your idea of right and wrong is not perhaps as fixed as you think it is. Now, Cecily can recall snippets of her past as the story goes on and they haunt her. But this raises a very intriguing notion. Are there things that endure beyond memory? That's a great question. I don't know. I think that there can be. I don't know with Cecily whether that's what they are or whether it is little bits slipping through the cracks. I think that there are certainly things that endure beyond memory in terms of like generationally speaking, because there are things that even if we don't remember them, we are affected by the things that our ancestors did or things that were done to our ancestors by other people. I think that that's definitely something that is explored in the book is the idea of privilege, the idea of how your life is different depending on whether you come from a privileged background or an underprivileged background. But also without giving the ending away, there's something enduring that Cecily has managed to find that gives her an answer to what she wants to do. And it's even after her memory has been erased. Yes, I I always um, like to focus on that question when I'm writing is like, what does my character want? What does she want more than anything else in the world? And I don't think that Cecily really realises what she wants until the very, very end of the book. Um, It is something that I think is quite beautiful and it is something that transcends her memory loss and transcends some of the pettier things that she's wanted in her life. But I also think that the thing that she wants is a thing that we all want. Which goes to the very heart in some ways of adolescent identity, sort of knowing but not being able to articulate it. Absolutely. Um, I think that that's one of the great um, fascinations of adolescence. It's one of the great struggles of adolescence is you are full of a lot of feelings um, and a lot of them are new feelings that you're perhaps not so used to. 
and they feel bigger than any of the feelings that anybody has ever had because for you they are like they are the biggest feelings you've ever felt and so I think that trying to articulate that trying to articulate this newly formed identity is like an incredible part of adolescence. It's why, you know, we as teenagers become, you know, it's why we write poetry. It's why I wrote so many stories as a teenager. It's why teenagers, I think, are so drawn to self-expression and to art, to all of those sorts of things. I think that art is an incredible way of helping us to understand ourselves. Well, the book is The Erasure Initiative. What would you do if you lost your memory? The author is Lily Wilkinson. And it's an Alan and Unwin release. So, Lily, thank you once again for talking with me. Thanks, David. Well, Jan, that takes us out for another week. And look, more books to read for next week, more authors to chat with. Despite the travails of uh, coronavirus and such like, we will do our best to keep bringing you more authors next week. See you then. Well, let's Bye. talk then. <laughs> <laughs> You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR.